Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 18th, 2022. Uh, Tuesday, we're a couple of weeks away from the election in America, and uh, the country seems as divided as ever, if not more than ever. Uh, perhaps we might describe America as being misaligned. So how are we going to realign America? How are we going to bring it back together? How are we going to find American leadership who are able to talk to both communities simultaneously and find people who are able to appeal to different people of different political stripes. We did a show earlier this week, actually yesterday, with the political scientist Gautam Mukunde. He has an interesting new book out, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. And Mukunde seems to argue that we need to look for individuals who can cross boundaries. Again, realigners, people able to speak to different communities in different ways. He picks out Reagan in particular, uh, Ronald Reagan as a figure able to do that, uh, as well as, of course, Barack Obama, uh, uh, someone who uh, able to speak to more than just one political community. Um, we also did a show yesterday with Rick Keller, former re uh, Republican her, uh, House of Representatives member from Florida. Uh, Keller has a new book out, uh, Chase the Bears, Little Things to Achieve Big Dreams. I also talked to Keller about how to realign American politics, how to get people talking to one another again. And he recommended humor, an ability to laugh at oneself. It, it seems as if it's all about looking outside oneself. If one can escape oneself, one's ideology, one, one's communities, perhaps even one's interests, uh, that is very helpful. We did a show uh, earlier this year with Jonathan Darman, a historian uh, who's written a book called uh, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. And Darman seems to suggest that FDR became FDR. He wasn't always FDR, but became FDR through his own health crisis and ability to see himself in a more realistic way. These are all really interesting conversations. We all know what we want. We're not just, we're just not quite sure who it is we want. And we're continuing that conversation today with my guest, Timothy Schenk, who has a book appropriately enough called Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. Uh, Shank is a professor at GW University in Washington, D.C., and he's joining us. Tim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So realignment, Tim, it, it sounds a bit painful. How do we do it? I know, like chiropractors gone mad. So in the world of political science, there's a literature that's built around this. So a very strong theory of realignment goes something like this, that every 30 years or so, every generation, during a period where society's gone through fundamental changes, whether it's the settling of the West in the 19th century or industrialization later on, that realignments are periods when the party coalitions catch up to those big changes. A new majority emerges to reflect the changed realities of a new country and push forward legislative reforms that help the government catch up as well. 
Now, that really strong version of realignment theory, I don't think you'd find a lot of political scientists who buy it these days. But what I really like about the idea is that it forces us to think about how all the different pieces of the political system fit together, how policy, how campaigns, how coalitions, how all of it ends up as one piece and how those coalitions can change over time with profound consequences for the American political system as a whole. And what's I think particularly relevant today is that after a long period in American history where we got used to having some pretty big majorities, whether that was the thumping Republican majority of the Gilded Age or the New Deal coalition that presided over so many crucial economic changes in the middle of the 20th century, for a long time now, neither party has been able to form a durable majority. And I think that's really at the core of at least some of the essential problems that American democracy and the United States as a whole are facing today. Tim, is it always in, in political terms, at least when it comes to realignment, is it always darkest just before noon? Often uh, it is. Not before noon, of course, before dawn, where yeah. it appears as if realignment is unthinkable. You have these two camps quite incapable of talking to one another. Has that always been the case throughout? Yeah, we're always prisoners of our moments. It's just very hard, given the passion that always gets stirred up in any political coalition, at any political moment, to think of how things could be different. One advantage of taking the long historical view, which I do in the book, which is really a biography of American democracy told by key figures in the making of these majority coalitions, it lets you see that in 1850, it seemed as if the bipartisan establishment that kept anti-slavery out of American politics. 1850, it seemed like that was going strong. It was impossible to imagine an anti-slavery party being mainstream. That would have seemed absurd. Jump ahead 70 years or so, 1924, Democrats are about as marginalized a political party as you could get in the United States outside of outright collapsing into third party marginality. Less than 10 years later, though, it's the glory days of the New Deal coalition when the party is more powerful than it's ever been before or since. So I think that's it can be a it can be inspiring. It can be a cautionary tale for right now because even though it seems like American politics is caught in this doom loop or doom loop where we keep repeating terrible patterns, well, things could change. They very, very, very easily could change. That could be changed for the worse. It could be changed for the better. But the biggest mistake would be to assume that it's impossible for us to break out of the pattern that we're in now. Tim, the subtitle of your book is "Partisan Hacks: Political Visionaries and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy." Is this notion of realignment, is it a, another kind of great man or great woman theory of history? Uh, you mentioned the attempt to create uh, a coalition after slavery or against slavery. In your book, you focus on Charles Sumner able to cobble together that coalition. Do these coalitions, this realignment, does it require remarkable figures like uh, Charles Sumner? Depends on how we're defining remarkable. And I actually, just to be honest about it, I do find Sumner who devoted his life to anti-slavery politics at a time when that would have seemed absurd for someone who was this Harvard educated flower of Northeastern society. He could have had a much easier life for himself, but instead he committed to a cause that condemned him to social marginality for much of his adult life. And even when he was taken seriously, was seen as this fringe figure who has ideas that are worth wrestling with, but a utopian who would never achieve real change. In fact, plays an essential role in bringing that about. But a theme that I come back to in the book is all of these figures that I discuss, even if they can have extraordinary influence on the shape of American society, one, they only do it, and this gets to a point you were talking about or you were raising earlier, they don't do it by just saying, here is what I want in my brain in a vat, stepped away from the context of the world, here's just what I wish the world was look like. 
No, they take a hard look at American society, see what the constraints are operating within, and then try to maneuver within them as best they can. And even in those best case scenarios where they have an accurate reading, not just of society, where society is now, but where it's going down the road, even in those best case scenarios, they never get what they want. There's tragedy in all of the stories I'm telling here. I think that makes it real. It doesn't necessarily make it an exciting read. It doesn't make it always an inspiring read. But I think knowing the obstacles that we face today, this is the only basis that you can have for developing a realistic vision of how we can get somewhere better. Because we can get somewhere better. It's just going to be really, really hard to get there. Your book is made up of, I think it's 10 chapters, 10 individuals. I'm sure you left out a lot of realigners. One review, and the reviews have been good. Congratulations. Even in the Wall Street Journal, you're a man of the left, uh, but they were very surprised with how accessible and friendly and smart your book is, which shows that even in intellectual terms, we can have realignment. Um, your book leaves out one or two figures. So, for example, there was one complaint I read that you left out FDR. Was was and, and I mentioned FDR earlier becoming FDR at Darman's work. Was was FDR? I mean, if you had five or ten more choices, would you have included him? There's an argument to be made for putting in someone who fully embodies that New Deal coalition. What I came to think, though, is that the problem for writing a book about realignments that's focused on individuals and characters like this one is, is that the New Deal realignment is the only one in American history that nobody saw coming. There are lots of people early in the 1930s when the Great Depression is war is tearing apart society. Lots of people who say that the political system needs to change and needs to catch up. We need to have a broad left progressive coalition in this country. But very, very, very few people, none that I could find, thought that the Democratic Party could be a vehicle for that transformation, because as long as that party had existed, it had deep roots in the South, home to a strongly committed conservative tradition, among other things. There's egalitarian roots in the South. There's a populist heritage that could be drawn upon. But if you're a left reformer looking at the American political system in 1930, your best bet is that you have to scrap the whole thing and start over. The idea that the Democratic Party could become the vehicle for that transformation, that was just shocking. And it really was a realignment that happened not quite by accident, but by figures stumbling into it rather than sketching out that vision ahead of time. And so because this New Deal coalition is just so deeply strange, as in, in 1936, FDR carries Harlem for the first time in the history of the Democratic Party at the same time that he carries South Carolina by 99%, which is just dictatorial level numbers, the sort of incoherence of that coalition inspired me to take a sort of cheat a little bit when I was putting together my explanation for that New Deal order. So instead of FDR, worthy character in lots of respects, I wanted to tell that story really in black and white looking at the sort of, especially putting that question of race at the center of the making coalition. And, and, you, and you choose Du Bois, but I mean, it's not really an either or, it's not Du Bois. But it's Du Bois and Walter Lippmann. Walter Lippmann, who's almost forgotten today, but in his lifetime was regarded as the, the dean of the Washington Press Corps, also a serious political thinker. And these two characters, Du Bois and Lippmann, who they both go to, they're at Harvard and not too, not uh, about one right after the other. They have similar professors. They both spend their life moving between the world of academia, activism, journalism, so alike in so many respects, but also fundamentally divided by this question of race. And yet both come back to crucial facts about the making this New Deal coalition that I think are they're impo so important for us keeping in mind today. Could history be repeating itself, Tim? Um, you, you, you're a, an editor at Dissent Magazine, a left-wing magazine, uh, and you've written some stuff about the future of the Democratic Party. And you wrote one piece with Michael Kazin, who's been on the show. He has a new book out, What It Took to Win. 
the history of the Democratic Party, trying to figure out what it will take to win tomorrow as opposed to yesterday. Um, I also did an interview yesterday or a couple of days ago with Michael Tomaski, the editor of The New Republic. I'm sure you're familiar with him and his work. He has a new book out, The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity. He's imagining Biden as a realigner and Biden's Democratic Party, even if I'm not even sure if it is really Biden's Democratic Party, Biden's Democratic Coalition as this new force of realignment in America. Is that just... Uh, wishful thinking on the part of progressive Democrats? I wish I could be there with, with Mike Tomaski, a very, very smart guy. I'm not nearly as optimistic about the situation that we're facing right now. I think that, yes, Democrats have had a good run, especially in presidential elections over the last 20 or so years. But by historical standards, the party's majority in those elections, not actually that impressive. And even more problematic, they just have a damnly difficult time keeping that majority in midterm cycles. So as long as, and of course, Democrats today, they're eager to point out all the ways in which these counter-majoritarian blocks that are in the Constitution from an unrepresentative Senate, the importance of the Supreme Court. You also just have the fact that the party coalition, because it's so concentrated in urban America, not great for representative purposes, all that is true. But the core problem facing the Democrats today, one, their coalition is too small, is small by historical standards. Two, it's badly located according to just the dictates of American political geography. And three, they're facing really troubling signs about erosion in basically the majority of the country that didn't go to college. All that means that is if Biden is realigning the party, I, it's hard to say that it's for the type of durable majority that can push through lasting change. We did a show uh, last week with the very successful, distinguished biographer Stacey Schiff. She has a new book out on Samuel Adams, who she describes as the revolutionary. He was a guy who got stuff done, although he wasn't really, I think, in your language, a realigner. Uh, you choose other figures of the founding fathers, Hamilton. I think you also include Adams and you certainly include Madison. Um, how could they be realigning when they were starting something afresh? Well, there are two things I had to do. One, I started, I focused especially on Madison and Hamilton because they're there at Philadelphia drafting the constitution, which sets up the rules of the game. And I want to start by explaining why the need to form these national majority coalitions is so important in American democracy. It's not the case in other countries. In a parliamentary system, you could have it's the norm to have multiple parties, not just the two that Americans are familiar with, but three, four, five, six. You have these multiple parties. And after the election, party leaders can form coalitions so that even if majority doesn't emerge at the polls, it can be fabricated after the fact. It's not the system that Americans have. I want to explain why we have this two-party system, why in a big, diverse country like the United States, that puts even more pressure on forming durable majorities so that you can push through those checks and balances built into the Constitution. And then, just conveniently, I want to show how, in particular, Madison almost, again, stumbles into democracy. In the 19, and when he's drafting the Constitution, he thinks that he's designed a system that will essentially protect an elite, a natural aristocracy, so that it has the sanction of the public, you can say people vote, but then they disappear and be, they disappear after they cast their ballot. And a gentlemanly class that looks out for the country's best interest will take charge, 
they'll run the show and the public can pop in every couple of years and give their thumbs up or thumbs down. Instead, Madison, along with Jefferson and other leaders of what at the time is called the Republican Party, has very little to do either with Charles Sumner's Republican Party or Donald Trump's Republican Party, but they become the leaders of this first party that says, oh, actually, the route to winning power in American life is by embracing partisan politics and using those tools to build a national majority. So the same person who sets helps set out the rules for the game that explains them in the Federalist paper also happened to be at the vanguard later in 1800 of making that new majority coalition. Now, Madison still thought that partisanship was almost an adolescent phase that Americans were going through. He thought that Republicans were a party that would end all parties, that the Americans could go back to the system he originally envisaged of elites governing without concern to partisanship. Doesn't turn out that way. But the fact that those people were crucial to not one, but two transformative moments in American democracy, First, setting up the rules of the game that make us need two parties in the first place, and then establishing that the system would depend on making those majority coalitions. To me, that was an opportunity that was too much fun to pass up. Tim Madison is, of course, famous for many things, particularly for the idea that if, if we were angels, we wouldn't need politics. So he's one of the founding fathers, not just of American democracy, but of realism. You're not a realist. You're an idealist. You're a man on the left. But it sounds to me as if Perhaps the best realigners are realists like Madison and Hamilton. You don't include Jefferson, who's anything but a realist. Yeah, I would say that the moment that the book clicked for me was when I realized how similar in crucial ways Charles Sumner and Phil Schlafly were. This goes back to our conversation earlier. In different yeah, ways. Schlafly and Schlafly, uh, and, and, and we've already talked about some. Yeah, and I'm, I don't want to preempt anything, but I would say that in both cases, those were figures who were dismissed often as marginal, utopian, idealistic, disconnected from political rally at the time. They're the ones who went at the long and over the long run. And really, what I want to do this idea of realigners is move past the divide between these prophets in the wilderness, idealists who are standing outside a fallen system, decrying the world as it is, and realists who just accept the way things are is the way that they have to be. I wanted to look at figures who tried to navigate between those poles. Never easy. It's often more satisfying just to either accept one of those two, one or one of those two paths. But I think if there's a capacity for trying to push through significant changes, not just as happenstance, but by working actively through democracy, it takes someone who has both a ruthless pragmatism about the world as it is, and that sense that it could still be different if you are smart enough, if you are shrewd enough, if you are pragmatic enough about the constraints that you're facing to change something for the better. Now, there's maybe this is a squish, maybe at the end of the day, I'm still an idealist, but if I am, it's someone who's trying to approach those idealistic goals as realistically as possible. In the, in the true Machiavellian school, as opposed to the anti-Machiavellian school that some people invent as Machiavelli. Um, Tim, many are called when it comes to realigners, but few are chosen. I mean, in the way you're describing it, I, Donald Trump could conceivably be a realigner. Uh, DeSantis, uh, this, Republic, this, this Trumpian wing of the Republican Party. Is it conceivable that they're the future? Absolutely. And this is one reason why I felt so urgently committed to writing this book. As a person of the left, this is not a world that I want to see. A world where it's hard to imagine Trump building a durable majority, but someone who's paying attention to American politics, another figure good name, I happen to live in Virginia, so this looms large for me, figure like Glenn Youngkin, who won the governorship in Virginia in 2021, overturning assumptions that Virginia would be a reliably blue state from here on out. It's actually pretty easy for me to see a path, not quite from Trump, but from a DeSantis or a Youngkin-esque figure 
towards some type of lasting GOP majority coalition. I think Democrats need to take that threat very seriously. And I think a problem with a lot of the crisis of democracy discourse over the last few years has been out of what I think is a rightful, like discussed with an explicitly anti-democratic turn that some parts of the Republican Party have taken, a turn that was expressed most unforgettably, indelibly on January 6th, that is all terrible. But there is a way in which you can see a DeSantis or a Youngkin or any other number of figures along that line winning a fair and free election, building that majority, and then using that democratic authority to push through changes that in my mind will make the country a less fair, less generous, worse place to live, all without having to storm the Capitol. I think we need to brace ourselves for that reality and not just say that the only way the other can si- the other side can win is if they cheat. Let's talk about Phyllis Schaffler. You, you brought her up before, a remarkable woman, a woman of the right, who, as you say, stuck to her guns and was eventually, I don't know if she was proved to be right, but certainly proved to be prescient. But what is it about Schaffler that makes her such an impressive real line, especially to you as a man of the left when she's on the right? So when before I started the book, my manager Schlafly, which I think might be the one that most folks have, is of the one that Kate Blanchett played in Hulu in her show a couple of years ago, which is chiefly as the scourge of feminism working from the right in the 1970s, the anti-Gloria Steinem, and that she enters the stage to help add this gendered element to an emerging conservative party. But that's really sort of the beginning and the end of her story. I discovered that's very, very far from the case. And that in fact, for Schlafly, the anti-feminist turn of the 1970s, which was real, which did make her national celebrity, but that was just one chapter in her larger career. And that really the animating principle for her, she said from from the first time that she's campaigning for the House of Representatives as a Republican in 1950, 20-something housewife, impressive at the time, down to 2016 when she is battling terminal cancer and dedicating her last days on earth to campaigning for Donald Trump. The through line is that she sees herself as a voice for what she calls the grassroots against the kingmakers. Now, that kingmakers is it stands for a liberal establishment that she says has its home at the top of the Democratic Party, but that is also dominating the Republican coalition. And just because they're closer to her, those Rockefeller elite Northeastern Republicans, if anything, she hates them more than the Democrats. And she really is the avatar for the making of a polarized politics, a populist Republican coalition that will take a sledgehammer to the New Deal order and help deliver the culture war politics that has transformed American life over the last 50 years. In some ways, she gets everything she wants because she succeeds at helping remake the Republican Party. Whether it delivered on the world that she wanted, I think is a much more debatable question. But there's no doubt that we are to a significant extent living in a world that Phil Schlafly played an important role in making and not just because she didn't like Gloria Steinem. Yeah, so Phyllis Schlafly, really, you're suggesting built not just Reagan land, but Nixon land. We've done lots of shows on that, including with Rick Perlstein, the author of Reagan land and Nixon land. Um, is is Reagan uh, uh, going on uh, Shafley's coattails in, in, in this sense, as perhaps you suggest that FDR was riding um, Du Bois and Lippmann's coattails in terms of the New Deal? Oh, much more explicitly. So Reagan, the distinctive achievement that he makes, it's not so much proving that Republicans can win after the breakdown of the New Deal order. That's what Richard Nixon will do. What Reagan does is add the notion that a Republican can win while embracing a free market, limited government agenda, at least rhetorically, that once upon a time was seen as political poison. Now, Schlafly will be with that cause in 1980. She will be a strong supporter of Reagan. She'll say that we need to oppose deficits and we need to support small government, among other reasons, for family values. But what was so striking to me about Schlafly is seeing how quickly she gets off that train so that by the end of the 80s, and especially in the 
anything a proto-Trump out there saying that we need to care about national security, that big government isn't necessarily a threat to our liberties if we can bend it to conservative ends. She's a strong supporter of Pat Buchanan, an affiliate of what's called paleoconservative, this idea that we need to go back to earlier conservative principles. So if you wanted to know where Donald Trump, if you wanted to predict what that someone like a Donald Trump could come down the line, you could do a lot worse than to read Phil Schlafly's articles from the 1990s, where you can see a fully formed Trumpism already taking shape 20 years before that dude stepped down his golden golden escalator to say that Mexico wasn't sending its best. The character who always uh, I've assumed was the sort of founding realigner on that front was Goldwater, Barry Goldwater. What do you make of him? Someone who is too pure for this democratic world. And this is if you want small d democratic world. So if you're looking for someone who in that balance between realism, idealism, leaned more toward the idealistic side, who refused to step out of his own mindset and confront the world as it, as it is, the political, the political constraints that were actually facing him, then Goldwater would be near the top of my list. He points the way toward a Republican party that at least can break open the solid South. That's going to be an important part of the story. But ultimately, the Republican majority, it's not going to be made out of giving up most of the country so you can win Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas. It's going to be made when you can take along 60 percent of the country and in Reagan's case, 49 out of 50 states with you when you're running for reelection. Those numbers where it's not so much the uh, segre unreconstructed segregationists in Alabama who you appeal to by denouncing civil rights. But the example that's often cited, a machinist wife in Ohio, in the suburbs of Ohio, who's looking for someone who cares about her. That's really a contribution that a Nixon or a Reagan would make that Goldwater just never got close to. Got a couple of characters pop up in this book who I don't know much about, and I certainly wouldn't have expected them alongside Madison and Hamilton. Uh, Martin von Buren, Martin Van Buren, excuse me, and, and Mark Hanna. Tell me about these characters. Why did you include them in the book? I mean, I understand you had to choose 10 and you could have choose 20 or 50 or 15. But what, what is so compelling in, in terms of your theory of realignment uh, is, is Martin Van Buren and, and, and Mark Hanna? Yeah, it certainly wasn't for their sex appeal. That's not why they're in there. I will say that if part one of the book clicking for me was seeing the similarities running through a Sumner or a Schlafly, who in that divide between realism and idealism lean more toward the idealistic side, another part was seeing the similarity between these figures like Van Buren and Mark Hanna, obscure today, but absolutely essential in their lifetimes. Why? Well, Martin Van Buren was the intellectual architect behind Jacksonian democracy, which is really both a crucial majority coalition in its own right and a vehicle for driving home the point that American politics will never not be partisan politics. Trump before it. Trump? Is, would that be fair or not? Sorry, can you repeat that? Trump before Trump? So interesting. Trumpism before Trump, at least. Yeah. So to the extent that J Jackson and because he is Jackson's right hand man, he's sort of the political... Uh, wizard who's standing behind Jackson as a popular figure. There's an element of appealing to outsiders. Van Buren himself is someone who never quite felt like he was welcome into the highest circle of the American elite, despite being president. There, That element is there, but with Van Buren, it is just yoked to this revelry, revelry in the, just the details of machine politics, which isn't quite Trumpism. And then there is a consistency to Jacksonian populism that I don't think you really see in Trump, where the 
with Trump, there was such this incoherence where he would denounce Wall Street one day and then celebrate that the Dow Jones was higher than ever the next, or even from one tweet to the next. So you, it was hard to get that through line there. But I think to the extent that this idea that you can build a Democratic, a electoral majority out of appealing to this disaffection with elites, that a thousand percent was there with Van Buren, who is just sees how you can turn that impulse into a political reality. Now, 60 years later, the shocking thing is Mark Hanna is going to pull a very similar trick, except he's going to do it not out of defending this populist impulse, but out of in the midst of the Gilded Age, when Americans are are facing some of the most ferocious class conflict in the world, and the divide between the rich and poor seems to be yawning larger than ever, Van Hanna is going to prove that in a industrial capitalist society, you can build a lasting political majority out of defending industrial capitalism, out of saying that you workers of the world might in theory be attracted to something like a socialist revolution, but in fact, what you're willing to settle for will be good jobs at good wages that can give you the basic elements of an American middle-class life. This idea that the system doesn't have to be overhauled so long as it's delivering enough for you today and that you have the promise of a little more tomorrow. So if Van Buren is the father, not just of a Jacksonian democratic majority, but of a country that learns to accept the basic institutions of democracy, something that even James Madison didn't wrap his head around. Hannah is the father of both a Republican majority coalition that lasts more or less intact from the 1890s down to the Great Depression, but that also proves that you can reconcile democracy with capitalism, modern industrial capitalism. And that transition that takes place in the United States in the, 19, in the at the end of the 19th century will reverberate across the world for the rest of the century to come. And it's still very much with us today. Do you think, I mean, coming back to this idea of many realigners are called fewer chosen, some come too early. I'm thinking of Teddy Roosevelt in this conversation. He's a man too unique, probably too much of a visionary, uh, not enough of a hack to, to, to become one of your realigners. But if Teddy Roosevelt was to reappear today, might he be able to realign politics around the environment, which is still an issue that hasn't been fully realized in American politics? This is where the realist in me says, probably not, uh, partly because he couldn't do it in his lifetime. But I think also yeah, but things have changed quite dramatically, Tim, over the last 150 years when it's come to the environment. Absolutely. But the question is how and maybe I'm just being too skeptical here. I think that there's a balance between how much where you can take voters and how much you just have to accept where they are right now. And I think that for anyone who takes a threat to climate seriously, as I think we all should. One, one uncomfortable fact we have to recognize is that, at least in the United States, despite decades of effort, we so far haven't been able to persuade, persuade the American public that the environment is a voting issue. So I think the better way to go about taking climate change seriously is to build a broad progressive coalition that can almost smuggle in the climate politics that I think is essential and important, but that unfortunately well, that doesn't seem to have a way of the, the, the chances are that will come from some a traditional conservative from a Teddy Roosevelt style figure rather than someone on the left? I think that it depends. I think there's an opportunity for both parties. I think that you could say also there's this Nixon goes to China element that a Republican could have a credibility here that a progressive never could. And this is someone Ron DeSantis has talked about as someone who yeah. as governor of Florida DeSantis is taking is, climate is, change seriously. seriously. And I mean, in the event of, God forbid, Miami getting flooded, disappearing into the ocean over the next few years or some other major uh, environmental cataclysm, then the politics change, don't they? Absolutely. But then it might be a case where you just get weird bipartisan alliances, right? Because there's some issues where you need a 
partisan majority to push through change. There are others where the system just chugs along and is able to, despite neither party having a durable majority, still enact significant changes. What's often described as the neoliberal turn in American politics over the last 40 years takes place at the same time that neither side has a durable majority. And yet you do get important changes for deregulation, for liberating trade restrictions, and a host of other policies that do make for a more economically divided country at the same time that and in a way, it's more effective because both Democrats and Republicans have fingerprints on the final outcome. So, so uh, yeah, I, I take your point, Tim. Although I, I'm seeing more and more books coming out, and it's interesting from where I sit because I see stuff before sometimes that happens. More and more books about a post neoliberal world of what it actually means. Let's end on the left. Um, one review uh, I read of your book suggested that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, a, the famous AOC, should read your book, learn a thing or two. I, I was curious that you included Obama. He's never appeared to me to be a, a realigner. Is that simply because you love the guy? I, have very, I did love him once upon a time. I just have a lot of residual affection there for him too. But I think you'll see a much more complicated portrait in the book itself. And really why I included Obama is that he had my favorite, it was my favorite research find of the book, which it turns out that in 1991, in his last year at law school at Harvard, he and his best friend at the time draw up a 250 page playbook for transform. And according to the Obama of 1991. Who was the best friend then? Who, uh, Robert who? Fisher, a former, econ uh, former economics professor who went on to work for the SEC. And according to the Obama of 1991, the if Democrats were going to push through significant lasting change, the only way they could do it was by figuring out a way to rebuild the New Deal coalition, which meant bringing back white working class voters who had drifted and in some cases stampeded away from the party after the 1960s. But hadn't Bill and Hillary come up with that 15 years early? So this is in the debate of the Democratic Party world circa 1991. There are some folks who will say just explicitly, those voters are gone forever. We're not going to get them back. We need to build a new coalition by drawing on college educated voters who are already trending our way. There are other figures, especially associated with Jesse Jackson, who say that we need to have a rainbow coalition. Obama's doing something that was a little bit different than either of those, saying that through strong universal economic policies that can make those white working class voters think more about the working class part of their identity than the white part of, the ide of their identity. The Democrats could break out of the zero sum racial divide that had split apart their coalition and then create a majority that could push through lasting change. Now, to me, the great irony of the Obama years, you can see knowing that he had this playbook in mind, is that the Obama coalition as it emerges bears very little resemblance to that vision that he conjured in 1991. It's like, uh, you know, it's the famous Mike Tyson quote. Uh, yeah, you, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face by Donald Trump, Mitt Romney and all the well, rest. But everyone has a plan in politics until they come to office and then everything changes. I mean, it's all very well to have a plan for Obama, but the reality of office was brutal and he dealt with it better than most presidents. Exactly. But I don't want to let him off the hook too easily, because what you could, what I think you can see is that he really does follow through that strategy, those sort of universal economic programs, trying to afford this class first coalition, just because he thinks that's good politics from his rise in Illinois down to his first two camp, his two campaigns for the presidency. I think the rhetoric changes, though, in 2012 to 2016, partly that's because of the rise of Trump, who leads Democrats into this trap, right? When he said, when Trump says, make America great again, too often the Democratic response in that period was, America's already great, something that Obama said in 2016 
of the Democratic National Convention. And I think in retrospect was a profound mistake. But the lesson that I take from this is if you have Obama, who in my view is the most talented politician of his generation, if he couldn't even pass this test, it suggests that none of us are going to be able to do it on our own, but that if we know the problem that's facing us and we have a sense that he was right, that the solution really is building that long-term majority, then that's a challenge that faces not just the single politician, but all of us today. Tim, you're a kind of political seismologist. Uh, earthquakes always seem inevitable when they happen, but we never quite know when. Any guesses? Uh, you're, you're as able to guess this as much as anyone. You'll probably be wrong, but are we talking about 2024, 2028, 2040? Do we, we see a genuine realignment here in some form to break through the current stalemate? I think that the possibility is there. It depends to maybe more than most people. I put a lot of emphasis on the messages that candidates use in their campaigns. It's one reason why I built the book around ideas around individual people, because I think those choices really matter at the polls. I think that the language that Donald Trump used, there's the whole vibe of Trumpism did a lot to push forward this alignment that was already underway, this driving away of working class voters, mostly white, but not always white, out of the Democratic Party into the Republican coalition. Trump really accelerated that transition. But I think Democrats have the capacity to push against it if they're smart about the strategies that they use. And I really hope they will be. No, I agree. Really interesting new book from a very smart young man. Realigners, partisan hacks, political visionaries, and the struggle to rule American democracy. I'm not sure who came up with that subtitle, Tim, but I'm not sure it does. Talk to my editor. Well, fire editor, all editors should be fired. But uh, it's an interesting book, certainly a fascinating conversation. Congratulations on the new book. It's just out today. Uh, what else? And I'm sure you seem probably read everything. What what other books would you suggest our audience look at? What do you enjoy reading? Oh, this is, so two books that I had in my head as I was wrapping up the book. One is called, it's reissued in 2011 based on earlier collection. It's uh, The Hard Road to Renewal a collection of essays from the great Stuart Hall, British social theorist, yes, yes. looking at the rise of Thatcherism, which I think it's not just about Thatcherism, it's really about modern democracy. A lot of the questions that are at the center of my book, I just found brilliantly discussed by Hall. That's one side. And then I think it would be really interesting to pair that, especially if you're coming to the first time with a, I think it was 2018 collection from Tucker Carlson, sort of the face of Trumpism, sort of the thinking-ish man's Trumpism, or at least the Fox News friendly Trumpism. The book is called Ship of Fools. And it's uh, sort of Carlson, who is, if nothing else, a very skilled writer, a former journalist, and in a way still a journalist today, but Carlson's case for his Trumpian agenda. And if you want to understand why this might appeal to not just folks who you find deplorable in any sense, but someone who you might even agree with on some important issues, Carlson's book is an excellent place to start. So Stuart Hall and Trump is, uh, and Tucker Carlson for a better understanding of the crisis of democracy that we're facing today. No Bannon or Peter Thiel is- Not as much fun. Uh, Carlson's a better writer than them. So more likely to- but is the, With Carlson and Bannon and Thiel, are there- could there be a realignment to a kind of conservative Leninism, Tim? Probably not Leninism. I have enough of a normie rejection. to think that you couldn't quite get there. But a durable conservative majority, unfortunately, from my perspective, that's all too clear a possibility.